1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Outward, Slate's show about all your LGBT queries. I'm Brian Louder, an editor at Slate, and I am dealing, gosh, with some really serious post-spooky season sadness this week. So I'm glad to have the show to record to be with all of my friends to make me feel better.
0: Aww. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate, and, um... Brian, did you see any ghosts this Halloween? <laughs> I saw a
1: few. I know
0: you're a huge believer and lover <laughs> I know.
1: of ghosts. Uh, no real ones, but a lot of cute little ones running around my neighborhood, which was really, really adorable to see. Yeah, I, oh, I, that's sweet. Halloween is for the kids. Just for those wondering, Jules was not able to record with us today, but she will be with us later in the show when we get into our topic that we have for you today. We have a very cool, very nerdy show. We'll be talking with Jeopardy! Champion and Tran's trailblazer Amy Schneider about her new memoir in the form of a question. I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since Christina pitched the idea because I missed Amy's run the first time around, but Christina, you've been a fan like since the beginning, right?
0: Oh yeah. I think it was... Almost exactly two years ago, um, I was visiting my parents and they watch Jeopardy every night. Right. And so when I'm with them, we also watch Jeopardy together. I lived with them for a few weeks during the pandemic. and was sort of like our little tradition together. They think I'm really good at it. So it's a huge <laughs> ego boost. And Amy Schneider was on when I was watching it in 2021. Mm-hmm. And she mentioned her partner or her girlfriend. And I was like, I think she's trans. And I was just kind of like, I'm so glad My parents are here watching this incredible trans woman win, like, just wipe the floor with the other people on Jeopardy, Um, and especially knowing how popular Jeopardy is. I was just stunned by, A, how good she was on the show, and also how, like, she was bringing trans visibility into a lot of American homes that probably aren't always uh, tuning into queer media. You know, of course, there are those of us queers that love the quiz shows, but Jeopardy has a really wide and diverse demographic. So when I heard that she wrote a memoir, I just crossed my fingers and hoped that she would agree to come on our show. I'm so glad she did. We had a really fun conversation. And i really hope that our listeners pick up the book and read it we barely touch on a fraction of the stuff she writes about in the book so hilariously and charmingly it's a must read of the season i'd say
1: yeah i completely agree i was so blown away by amy's mind and just her like amazing personality and just the way that she talked about this experience so let's get to it we'll be back with all of that and more after a quick break
0: Well, this week we have a special guest who I've been wanting to have on the show for basically two years. Amy Schneider became a Jeopardy! champion and darling of American living rooms in fall 2021, winter 2022. She was on a tear. Her 40-game winning streak was the second longest of any player Jeopardy! has ever seen, And she ended up winning $1.3 million, more money than any other woman in the history of the show. And I think only three other people have ever crossed the $1 million mark. Devoted listeners might remember that Amy was actually my pride one month during her streak back in late 2021, because I had watched a few episodes when I was at my parents' house. And in the part of the show where each contestant shares a fun fact, Amy said that with her winnings, She and her partner, Genevieve, wanted to buy a house with two baths in it because they both loved taking baths so much. It was so gay, so good. Anyway, (laughs) Amy has just come out with a sparkling memoir titled In the Form of a Question, And it is, I would say, a remarkably open and revealing book for a new queer icon. Um, Amy explores um, not only her childhood and her education, but also her recreational drug use, her sexual history, and the dissolution of her first marriage. And she writes with great candor and nuance about how she came to an understanding of her trans identity So in the book, we get to follow along with her as she explores and settles into that identity in the years leading up to her Jeopardy streak. I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely sped through this book. I can't tell you how pleased I am to have Amy on the show this month. Amy Schneider, welcome to Outward.
3: Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, like quick correction, it was even gayer than that. What we wanted <gasps> was a bathtub that was big enough for both of us. Oh wow! <laughs> I, I, when I watched it on TV, I was like, I cannot believe they let me say that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm so glad they did. Ooh. So, I before we get in into detail. the book, where are you on on that big bath thing? Is that yeah. works? Has <laughs> that happened? I don't uh-huh. think
3: it has not happened it turns out it is uh very difficult to buy a house and um (laughs) you know especially because like having a bunch of money does not get you a mortgage if you don't have like a w-2 uh income that so that's that's just been a whole adventure but you know it's still the dream Mm. for sure
0: i know that's homophobic (laughs) that's really don't they know who you are you should just be able to waltz (laughs) in So, Amy, so much of this book is about your journey to self-confidence, seeing yourself as desirable. And it it seems like figuring out that you were trans was a part of that, but also now you're famous. (laughs) And you write in the book about, you know, all the new avenues that's opened up for you, such that, this is a quote, I can imagine myself as a hipster-approved queer celebrity, and dare I say it, a sex symbol, which, affirmative. Um, (laughs) But what else can you tell us about how this sort of wild uh, an unexpected turn in your life has affected your understanding of yourself?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, when it it, it all started, you know, this was not something I expected. Um, you know, I, I went on Jeopardy, thought I would have some fun and, and that would be it. Um, and then um, even, even before the episodes aired, I knew it would be big, but I didn't realize how big it was going to be. And mm-hmm. so I definitely started out with a, a fair amount of imposter syndrome, essentially, like, you know, all the you know, getting invited to the White House and and you know all these crazy places I never expected to be. And even starting out writing the book, I felt very much like, who wants to hear about, you know, little old me and and that sort of thing. Um but as I've settled into it, I've sort of realized that, you know, yeah, I you know, am I lucky to be in the position I am? Sure, but that doesn't mean I don't deserve it. Um, you know, people are mm-hmm. responding to something real about me. And, you know, beyond that, you know, trans people don't get a platform all that often. And so I have a responsibility not to be too self-deprecating about it and to to take this opportunity and, and you know, be out there and be visible and represent uh, a community that, you know, there's not that many of us.
0: And And even more than that, I mean, just being on Jeopardy, which, by the way, Jeopardy viewership spiked during your streak because <laughs> everyone wanted to see, you know, this woman who was breaking records and just absolutely killing it. And I feel like given Jeopardy's demographics, I mean, you probably came into the living rooms of a lot of Americans who don't normally watch trans people on TV. They're not watching like pose or something like that. Obviously you knew that going into the show that you'd be streamed to, you know, many mm-hmm. millions of viewers. How did you arrive at the decision of how to present yourself as a trans person on, you know, one of the most watched shows in America?
3: Yeah. You know, I think that uh, I struggled with that a bit in the, the sort of lead up to it. And one of the things in particular I struggled with was um, my voice, which was the thing I felt a lot of dysphoria about, mm. um, you know, just because if nothing else, like I get called sir on the phone a lot. You know, far that's far more common than anybody um, misgendering me in person. Um, and so... I really considered, like, did I want to really, you know, pitch up my voice and try to try to have a more feminine voice on the show? Um, you know, I was kind of confident about the rest of myself because I knew they would have somebody, like, doing my hair and makeup and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but that was what I was worried about. And I sort of decided at the last minute not to because really for no other reason than that it just felt like a distraction. And, you know, I wanted to be focused on the game and not how I was coming across. And I had just sort of told myself in general, like, just go on and be yourself. If you're Mm -hmm. trying to be fake, then, you know, not only will it make you less likely to win, but it also, you know, that's something I could fail at. Whereas Mm -hmm. if I'm being myself, then however people react to it is how they react to it, but I can live with it. Um, And so that that was sort of what I was, my philosophy going into it. Um, I certainly, especially once I won a few games, realized that like, okay, I'm going to be a, you know, well-known trans person on some level at this point. And so I was certainly conscious of trying to, you know, represent, you know, put my best face forward and, and represent the community well, but I was not, you know, I wasn't trying too hard again. I was just, just trying to focus on the game. I think it, it helped a lot that there was no studio audience at the time. And so I was really able to separate Mm -hmm. like how I was coming across from playing the game.
1: Yeah um amy as we get into the book a little bit i wanted to give our uh, listeners a sense of how it's organized because i think it's a really interesting choice that you made um the chapters are all as the title would suggest in the form of a question just like jeopardy um but you say in the book that part of Part of that is about uh, you organize this sort of according to neurodivergence, specifically ADD. Can you explain a little bit about how how you came to the format of uh, that you wrote in, and and why that worked well for you as a memoir sort of technique? Because memoirs are hard to do and hard to organize.
3: <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I mean, I, I did it. Um, you know, I I had never thought about writing a whole book before, yeah. and it was a very imposing uh, thought. <laughs> and so I. I Broke it up into, you know, a bunch of kind of independent essays just because that was the only way I could, you know, sort of manage it. And I also, when I was starting out, again, with that sort of imposter syndrome before, I didn't intend it to be as much of a memoir as it was. I wanted to kind of have some non-memoir things in there, some, like, different, like, I don't know, more, like, culture writing or Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. philosophical ideas or things like that. Yeah. But you know, one, I sort of got more comfortable with the idea that it was okay for me to write a memoir, and two, that other stuff was, like, harder, <laughs> and the memoir stuff came more easily, Um and my deadlines kept passing, and I had to, <laughs> to, <Yeah. laughs> to sort of focus on it for that reason. But, uh, yeah, and I think I was, I, I was sort of happy with the way it came out, um, you know, sort of organically. I think somebody I was working with called it, like, a mixtape, mm. um, which I, I thought was I a good a, metaphor for it, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And the footnotes, too, to me, struck me as, I mean, part of what makes the book so fun and feel so full of yeah. life and personality yeah. and, and feel, I don't know how you feel, but it, it felt like true to you because we get to see sort of the little asides that are sort of coming mm. into your head or a little more context about what you're, what you're talking about. And it, gets, and it also struck me that... Oh, is, ahead, it,
1: it gets spicy in the footnotes, everybody. So oh, don't incredibly it. <laughs> spicy. get <laughs> the spicy, incredibly yeah, spicy. it's hot down there, so don't miss
2: that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but it also made me think, you know, for somebody who has ADD and who is, you know, working um, sort of like uh, using their neurodivergence as a secret weapon. I-, I think you sort of describe it that way. Footnotes seem like a great way to do that, too.
3: Absolutely. And I mean, it was that was the point at which because I'd, I'd wanted to do it. I mean, it's definitely a David Foster Wallace influence, for yeah. sure, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, where I came across that format. And I always loved that. Um, but I'd sort of been resisting doing it, um, Uh, partly because I sort of felt like my editor wouldn't like it, which may not have been true. uh, Um, but when I was writing the, the chapter about ADD, I was like, well, I have to do it in this chapter because that's the whole point is, you know, that is the thing about my brain is it doesn't stay in one track. It is constantly, you know, jumping into different directions. And when I'm writing, like, you know, every few sentences I'll be like, well, there's two different directions I want to go with this. Mm-hmm. And without the footnotes, it would it was really like slowing me down and paralyzing me. And I would end up with a bunch of like nested parenthetical asides that were impossible <laughs> to read. <laughs> um yeah. and so yeah, doing it in in that chapter and my editor liking it and giving me the green light to just go ahead with it, it really like liberated me and, and made it, you know, made everything else like come easier. That that definitely I felt That was kind of the moment at which I sort of felt like, okay, I know what this book is at this point, once I started with the footnotes.
2: Cool. That's fascinating. I mean, because I I don't know, I mean, let me just say as a as a as a trans woman who's very invested in my in my brain, I, you know, had all sorts of reactions and identifications Mm -hmm. reading along. And and one of the ways I was sort of processing those kinds of like constant twists and turns is also that like, I don't know how else to say this, like Amy, you're so reasonable. Like, like you're so <laughs> honest. Um, you're you're so careful to not necessarily kind of just always check your own thoughts or beliefs, but to really explore, you know, what you're talking yeah. about. Explore beliefs or stories from multiple angles that really connect immediately to the reader, mm-hmm. and that doesn't at all sacrifice being witty uh, mm-hmm. or really wise or having brilliant insight, which I just kind of love. And and I guess I'm kind of curious to what extent that for you is also maybe conditioned, I mean, one, maybe by being, you know, a public trans figure. I mean, I know mm-hmm. just like the intensity of what it feels like to be a trans woman in this culture that sort of obsessively consumes and, you know, aggresses us is that like, you feel like you have to fact check and caveat mm-hmm. every single mm-hmm. thing you're going to say <laughs> uh-huh. just sort of defensively mm-hmm. without realizing it but it also might be something that I, I imagine if I'm not projected you know comes from from you know early on life experiences there's a point where you you mm-hmm. explain speaking of footnotes you mentioned that you know pleasing grown-ups was sort of a, a skill of yours as a kid in the footnote than adds, I'm still pretty good at it, <laughs> and, and I was like, Oh no, me too. Oh, I, I'm sort of curious. Like, is is that also this kind of, um, yeah, sort of coping mechanism developed, uh, you know, to sort of be in the world as as a trans girl and a trans woman that then kind of you can sort of leverage to put to ends that are more satisfying, uh, mm-hmm. ultimately.
3: Yeah, I think that that those are definitely factors. I think on on the trans side of it, I sort of think of it as I, you know, I spent my whole life baffled by the things that i was and wasn't allowed to do like you know why was i not allowed to read the american girl books these mm-hmm. things made no sense to me and so i've always been like just trying to figure out what everybody wants from me and and how to play along by these rules that i didn't understand so i think that that was definitely part of what was going on with that um but yeah i think that you know then sense coming out i think that yeah, you are always kind of aware that, you know, you exist. I'm a walking political debate in a certain way. Um, And that's always sort of a a hazard of, of, you know, being out in public and especially now being famous. Um, And also, you know, I... I've been on Twitter for a long time, I see so many people yelling at each other, and I don't. I want to actually have a chance at reaching people. I know that people are going to be reading this book that are not already in alignment with me politically, and I want to communicate with them and connect with them and hopefully change some people's minds rather than just feeling self-righteous.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back with more from Amy right after the break.
0: Reading this book, I kept thinking of the audience. I mean, I'm sure there will be a lot of people who read this book who are Jeopardy fans and, and maybe don't really know that much about the book going into it, but really like it <laughs> on the show. I feel like you will have snuck some really sexual and subversive stuff into the hands <laughs> of like a fair number of oh, kind yeah. of small C and maybe even large C uh, conservative Jeopardy fans. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to know how, how you thought about the audience while you were writing the book and also how you came to feel comfortable sharing parts of your life part of your mind that a lot of other people might have felt kind of squeamish about putting on paper
3: Mm-hmm. yeah no definitely at, at these book signings some of the people that come up and are am like oh i'm excited to read the book i'm like you may be in it for a surprise <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a good one yeah but that was you know certainly intentional i think in terms of feeling comfortable with it i'm just sort of Am comfortable with it. I just, you know, kind of an open person. And certainly the one of the feelings about it was when I first became famous, and you know, Jeopardy is very wholesome and all this sort of thing. There was this part of my mind was like, oh no, what if people find out about all the sex and drugs? Huh. And so putting it out there is just like, now I don't have to worry about it. Like it's not a secret anymore. Um, but also it was about I felt this sort of um I was afraid that. My sort of wholesome image as being being the first trans person that a lot of people had accepted would then become an unfair standard that they would hold other trans people oh. to. Oh, like, it's, like I'm not transphobic, but why can't you just be like that nice Amy lady? Sure. Um, oh. and so I wanted to, and you know, these sorts of like sex and drugs, you know, are a lot of trans people go through this sort of thing. Um, you know, like being trans for many people means that the sort of moral framework you were raised in um is actively destructive to you and so Mm -hmm. you wind up going out and you know being pretty experimental with your life um and so i wanted to show that you can have those experiences and still be successful and a nice person on tv and all of those sorts of things so yeah that was that was my thinking about i mean the audience i was thinking was two people one the people that had never Known a trans person before and wanting to show a sort of complete picture of one, and two, uh, what were the things that I would have liked to know about being trans in Mm. the years before I came out? Like, Mm. you know, talking about a lot of the myths that held me back, and and you know, hopefully, you know, helping some people out.
1: Speaking of that, actually, one of the most um, moving and kind of actually personally resonant chapters for me was about the Boy Scouts, uh, Boy Scouts camp. Because uh, I was a Boy Scout, I actually went all the way to Eagle and and kind of did it in a similar way to you. Because I was told to do it and sort of silently hated it and and uh-huh. you know uh, went all the way to the end for for my dad and whatnot. Um, you know, you write that you found going to being in the Boy Scouts and then going to Scout camp specifically for the summer. Um, an opportunity to learn valuable lessons about how to be the man I was doomed to become. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that experience and why you thought it was such a a definitive moment sort of in your, your personal development and also on your gender journey.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I had from childhood, just preferred hanging out with girls, you know, like on the playground whatever. Um, and whatever. And you know, at that particular time, you know middle school, the right. sort of beginning of of puberty and things like that, first of all, all of a sudden, like gender integration was not allowed socially um and you know every- you know my body is betraying me and all these sorts of things. I mean it's just an awkward time for everyone, yeah, um, and then to have the sort of social companionship I prefer taken away from me and thrust into this all male world where you know those sort of unspoken rules i was talking about before were everywhere um and you know maleness is so heavily policed in yeah. our society that it it's very limited boundaries of of what you're allowed to do and how you're allowed to be um and the boy scouts exacerbated that you know i am not i'm not an outdoorsy person <laughs> i am not you know that's that's just not the sort of things i enjoy um, I like sitting around and reading a book, and my scoutmaster did not think that that was a good use of a scout's oh, time. That is not what the Boy Scouts is all about. <laughs> and so it was. And as I said, I I wanted to be pleasing adults. I wanted to be the good kid that, you know, was excelling at everything. And this was just something that I could not possibly excel in. And so it was really, I was I was stuck in this paradox of of not being able to do the the thing I thought I was best at.
2: Um oh. I, I okay I have to ask you about Daria. <laughs> yeah. Not just not just because I'm also a fan, uh. um but I think like for me the this chapter where you you write about, you know, actually your shifting relationship to that show mm-hmm. I, I think is so emblematic of of this kind of larger theme I think we're talking about here which is, you know, first of all, I don't know. I think there's could be a lot of pressure on trans people who do become famous to sort of carry the cultural weight of I don't know, just sort of truisms or tropes that like, Mm -hmm. we've never signed off on. And one of those is this kind of like crass version of representation matters Mm -hmm. where it's like, in the past, all trans people were sad because (laughs) there weren't, you know, Amy (laughs) Schneider's on Jeopardy. But now that there are, all trans children will be happy and grow up and be free. And it's like, that's neither of those (laughs) pictures make really any sense. And, And one of the things that I love and also really relate to, is you're very candid and thoughtful about you know, just because you're a child who has doesn't have the language or wasn't handed a concept like transgender, you know, in childhood or adolescence, doesn't mean you just sit around, you know, completely cut off from the world, totally miserable <laughs> and confused. Like, you indirectly extract meaning from the culture mm-hmm. that you live in. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it seemed to be like Daria is one of those places. Um, and it's just all so great. You know, I just love the way you write about the show. So could you share with us a little bit? so like how did that that show feel important to you when you first started watching it and how and, and what some of the lessons that it kind of taught you um as you as you became a super fan uh,
3: yeah i mean i think that you, i think you're totally right i mean i think that um i certainly always did have you know female role models right um mm-hmm. uh whether fictional or otherwise you know those were the people that i looked up to however semi subconsciously Um, And Daria was certainly one of them. Um, I mean, you know, she was exactly, I mean, we're essentially the same age, uh, the same sort of, you know, very, like, sarcastic, standoffish, uh, you know, intellectual. Um, And so it was somebody that I could, like, completely, completely identify with. Um, And you know it was a time in my life when i was feeling very isolated i didn't really have any friends in college for various reasons um and you know daria certainly also feels isolated and feel like she has no friends except for jane um and the way in which she matures over the series is so subtle she doesn't change exactly none of the characters really change um but they're just very subtly deepened and made more complex. And I think one of the amazing things I've discovered about the show is that all of the side characters who are so cartoonish in one note, oh. they, have, they each have like one character trait. And yet, as you get to know them over the series, there's all these little moments that make you realize that despite their one note um, portrayal, they have their own full story going on, their own internal life. And they're all more complex than they appear, while still, you know, it's not that the one note is wrong, but that there's just more to them and there's more to everybody. I think one of the things Mm. that happens over the show is that Daria realizes she has more friends than she thinks. Mm. And it made me realize that I had more friends than I thought. That just, you know, I felt at the time and still have a tendency to feel that if somebody is not my absolute super close friend that I share everything with then we're not really friends and they probably don't even really like me. Um, but Daria helped me, you know, tone that, that worry down a little bit.
0: I also wanted to ask about another one of your loves, um, Tarot, which Yay. on the, uh, another recent episode, we talked about this new queer um, paranormal TV show and there's a Tarot specialist in it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you grew up extremely Catholic as did I. Mm-hmm. And uh, tarot, it feels like maybe uh, f- sort of came in in place of that and and provided sort of a different structure of uh, finding meaning in things. But also you mm-hmm. write about it as just a great way to meet people. How yeah. did you come <laughs> to, um, how did tarot come to have, you know, such a big role in your life?
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, for one thing, I think when you think about it, uh, you know, organized religion also largely functions for a lot of people as a way to meet people, you know? Yeah, um, yeah that's definitely. a good point. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think, you know, tarot is just, you know, my my ex-wife got into it, and so it was just sort of around, and I'd always found it kind of vaguely interesting. Um, and so I, I read The uh, 78 Degrees of Wisdom, this the book that got a lot of people into it. Um, and then, you know, I started doing it for myself and for other people, and it's just sort of a fun, like, little improv game. Like (laughs) the cards come up and then you have to like Mm. come up with a story on the spot that is sort of coherent with these random cards with their weird images on them. Um, But what I found pretty quickly was that it always seemed to work. Like when I was doing it for other people, they virtually without exception would be like, wow, that was really no, I I see what it's saying there. That was really helpful or, or all of these sorts of things. And I was like, I've just made that up off the top of my head. It's just so weird that it keeps working, but I think it's yeah. it's just a, a well-designed tool for that. And so it, you know, it was especially at the time when I was single and, and living alone and didn't have a lot of sort of human interaction. It was a way for me to go out to a bar and, and put it out there, and if, if anybody wanted to come up and ask about it, I'd give them a reading, and we would you know, in this very brief interaction, talk about some kind of, like, really stuff, you know, meaningful stuff that Mm. was important to them. Um, Not even necessarily in detail. I didn't always know what we were talking about. But it was a way to, like, Mm. actually have a real conversation without any real commitment. You know, Mm. we would have this conversation that could potentially get a little bit intimate. And then I'd be like, all right, bye, you know, thanks. (laughs) And that would be it. Um, And so it was, that was really one of the main things I got out of it. But it's also just for myself. I mean, I found it helpful at times writing this book and Mm -hmm. and other times. Like when I get stuck, that's when tarot is useful, whatever it is I'm stuck on, because it shakes up your brain and and gives you a new way to look at things.
1: I love that you shared that you use it as part of your writing process, because I, I do the same thing. <laughs> and uh, listeners, if you need another, you know, another reason to pick up this book, please know that Amy gives a wonderful introduction to the major arcana uh, and sort of mm-hmm. a, a, just a great uh, intro to how tarot works in general. So you get that, you know, for free <laughs> in, in <the> book <laughs> as well. It's very good.
0: Yeah. Multi-purpose.
1: Multi-purpose.
0: Yeah. Something uh, for
1: everyone.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: What direction do you see your life taking now? I mean, it feels like Jeopardy and your fame kind of changed everything for you.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a question that I feel very uncertain about right now, having, you know, just gotten through this book launch that had been sort of, yeah. you know, taking up all of my brain for the, the past few months. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly would love to keep writing. I, I loved writing this book, despite hating writing this book. Um, (laughs) And it's, you know, I I definitely feel like I have a lot more to say on on a variety of topics. Um, I certainly want to, again, now that I've kind of got this off of my plate, I'm thinking about how to be a little more active around trans issues. I'm, you know, there's certainly, you know, in California you know, it's such a liberal state, but there's a lot of conservative areas and a lot of local school boards that have been kind of hijacked by some pretty hateful people and wanting to sort of do my best to bring more uh, exposure to that and, and do what I can to, to help, you know, trans kids in particular. Um, I think it's so, it's so upsetting to me that, that, you know, children are being targeted because they have, you know, like no power at all to fight back. And it it's, You know, it's something I really—I feel so powerless about, but I have more power than you know most people, and so I want to—I want to try to start using that more.
2: Mm. Yeah, Yeah, uh, I'm so glad to hear you want to keep writing too. Because honestly, I just think you're such an engaging, Mm. hilarious, and thoughtful writer all at once, and—and—and more broadly, I think one of the just beautiful things that transpires over the course of the book is. I think you you really break down in this totally non-didactic way the kind of canned image of success that our culture uses mm. to tokenize, mm. you know, people from from minority or marginalized communities where it's like, well, you know, one exceptional, perfect, saintly <laughs> suffering <laughs> trans woman gets to be in the spotlight. And it's like, hey, actually, no, um, you know, there is no one kind of trans woman, but also like you can be somebody who like, has a really interesting, exciting, sexy, queer life, you know, who enjoys psychedelics, who, you know, has done this and that and still be an incredible Jeopardy! champion, right? Mm-hmm. And I just think that there's something really... Beautiful and almost poetic about the way that 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 comes across, um, you know, in reading the book, and I just I just really appreciate you, kind of kind of making that case so flawlessly and seamlessly because it's something I find myself so hungry for, uh, yeah. In 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 all of these supposed culture wars we're living through, so th- there was not a question about <laughs> that. I was just well, <laughs> shamelessly shamelessly
3: fangirling. I mean, I'm not going to complain about that. Um, <laughs> I think that you know it is something that I, I've thought about. You know, I was sort of surprised by how many times I've heard the story along the lines of, you know, my my father or whatever saw you on Jeopardy and like they sort of it's that's sort of what got through to them about trans people and, and, and all of that. Right. And I think it's because, you know, I wasn't on Jeopardy as a trans person. That wasn't, you know, partly to right. Jeopardy's credit. It was something that they never had any interest in, you know, highlighting any more than I wanted them to. Um and, you know, I and so I wasn't there. I wasn't there in a way that sort of triggered people's sort of defensiveness. Hmm. I wasn't there hmm. in, a, in a sort of political sense. Um, and I think that that's, you know, something that that's why I was able to kind of like slip through people's, uh, you know, kind of get around people's defenses and get through to them in a way that other, other you know, trans representatives were are are not able to do because they're positioned in such a different way.
0: Yeah, totally. Mm. Well, Amy, it was such a pleasure to watch you on Jeopardy. I'm so grateful that you were able to join us on the show. Um, And thank you so much for your
3: book. We loved it. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Thanks for having me.
0: Again, Amy's book is called In the Form of a Question. It comes highly recommended by Outward. Yeah
2: seriously like truly my favorite book that i've read in a long time
3: i just like oh. i
2: think i'm gonna read it again it was
0: just so <laughs> yeah it was really really yeah. enjoyable oh
3: well, thank you yeah no i i i eventually became very proud of it you know when i <laughs> right. was first done i was just like oh here's you know dah, dah, dah. but once i got a little space i was like yeah no i'm really happy with how it came out mm.
0: good Good. And oh I hope you're able to bask in the the book tour part of it, and everyone telling you how great it was.
3: <laughs> I do love people telling me how great it is,
2: <laughs> and then get that back. Yeah, deserve yeah. yeah. <laughs> it.
1: All right, that is all we have for today's episode of Outward. As always, please send us your feedback and topic ideas to Podcast at slate.com or via Facebook or XU at Slate Outward. Just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcast extra segments on shows like The Waves and Working, and you will never, ever hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more about that, go to slate.com slash Outward Plus. Our show was produced by Pallas Shaw. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends, family, everyone you love about it. And rate and review the show so others can join in on the fun. Uh, Until next time, stay gay, everybody.